All right, well, we are in the final week of our sermon series entitled, What Would Jesus Say to the Church? And uh, for those of you who have been with us for the past seven weeks, we have been looking at seven letters that were written to seven churches in Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, that are found in Revelation 2 and 3. And Jesus dictated these letters through a man named John of Patmos. So today we're going to be looking at uh, the church in Laodicea. If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you uh, to turn to our text this morning. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. If you don't have your Bibles, the text will also be on the screen above. And if you take out your sermon guides right now, uh, you'll see the sermon text there as well. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me refined gold in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit on my, with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Will you please join me in prayer? Jesus, you are the true and faithful witness. You are the ruler of all creation, and we turn to you right now. And we ask, Father, we intercede for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East who are undergoing severe persecution. We think of uh, the Iraqi Christians who are being beheaded, who are being persecuted, who are being driven out of their hometowns even right now as we speak. And with heavy hearts, Father, we ask for salvation. We ask that you would save them, that you would rescue them, Father. We pray that you would turn the hearts of ISIS towards you. And in the meantime, Father, we pray for swift justice. We pray that there would be a halting and a stopping of, of the awful atrocities that are going on in that land. We think of our other brothers and sisters in Christ in places like Syria, Father. We pray that you'd help them out. We, we think of the wars, Father, in Ukraine and in Palestine and Israel, Father, and we pray for peace. We don't know where else to turn. We ask, Father, that you'd give wisdom to our governmental leaders, Father. We pray that you'd give wisdom to our president to know how to, to react to these difficult situations. It's to you and to you alone that we ask for deliverance from. I pray now, Father, that as we open up your word, that you would soften our hearts and that you would use the teaching and preaching of your scriptures to strengthen us and encourage us and empower us and rebuke us and discipline us so that we could become the kind of church that you desire us to be, Father, so that we could become the kind of men and women that you want us to be. We pray this in your name and for your glory. And everyone said...
Well, how many of you uh, watch the show House Hunters on HGTV? Any House Hunter fans? There's a few of you, yeah. Uh, Kelly and I love to watch House Hunters. Uh, For those of you who've never seen it before, it's a reality TV show. And typically, uh, there's a couple, and they have a budget and a realtor, and they look at three homes, and at the end of the show, they have to pick one. Uh, And sometimes there's these very uh, wealthy, expensive buyers, and they go in and they'll have $800,000, $900,000, and they'll buy a home all cash. Or uh, my favorite one is the international version of House Hunters, where you have these couples who are moving overseas to to Europe or, uh, you know, Fiji or South America, buying vacation homes or just moving for jobs. And and, and a lot of them, you know, they'll buy these 300,000 square foot home, you know, on the beach in Fiji with infinity pool, vaulted ceilings and ocean views. And sometimes when I'm watching that, I start to think to myself, that would be pretty cool. I'm not sure if Hope would go for it, but I would love a vacation home in Fiji. You know, that would be really neat. I don't know if you ever think that way. I think many of us oftentimes daydream about wanting more financial stability, about wanting more control over our life, about having the margins to wipe out debt or to fix up our home, right? Many of us like to dream about this. Many of us agree with uh, a man by the name of Spike Milligan who once said, all I ask is for the chance to prove that money can't make me happy. Right? Some of you would like that opportunity. You know money can't make you happy, but, you know, it'd be kind of fun to find out. So why is this? Why do we have this obsession? Why do we have this focus on, on wanting more money? According to a 2008 study by the Brookings Institution, they found that most Americans actually don't want to be filthy rich. They're not reaching for the 1%. Most of us don't want to hide gold plates under our mattresses. According to the study, they found that most Americans want three things when it comes to money. We want security, we want power, and we want approval. Security, power, and approval. We want security. We want financial freedom. We want financial peace right? We want six to nine months of salary in the bank. We want uh, the right margins, vacation money, retirement money. We want to feel in control of our life and our future. We also want to have power. Money gives us power over people. It gives us the ability to leverage our own interest, and it also gives us buying power, right? When you have a lot of money, you could buy what you want when you want. You could buy new cars. You could buy new houses. You could go on vacation. We don't mind that. And finally, money gives us approval. We can win friends and influence people. It gives us access to certain social circles. Sometimes it makes us feel beautiful and attractive. Security, power, and approval are all ways that Americans, including many of us, use money. And here's why. When you have those things, you are self-sufficient. And we love being self-sufficient. Being self-sufficient means you don't have to go to mom and dad when you're in a financial jam. Being self-sufficient means you could influence your friends. It means that people are proud of you because you've made it. You've reached up to this uh, American dream. You've, you've ascertained this independence that everybody around us wants. We are a self-sufficient people, and so were the believers in the church of Laodicea. Look with me at verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus is parodying the the, the church's words back to them, and he says, You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. So here's this church, and they're essentially saying, We have all of this money, we have all of this wealth, we don't need anything. 
Essentially, they're saying we're self-sufficient. And when you understand the historical background for the church in Laodicea, it makes a lot of sense why they're saying this. It makes a lot of sense why they're self-sufficient. Uh, the church in Laodicea uh, was on the middle of two trading routes, which brought in a lot of money. And because it was at the center of two trading routes, there were three industries, three businesses that were just booming, that were thriving during this time. Uh, first, there was banking. Banking was, was huge. Laodicea was kind of like the Switzerland of its day. It was centrally located, and it was the home of many successful banks. That brought in a lot of money. That generated a lot of cash. Next, there was medicine. There were hospitals. There were popular schools of medicine. And most importantly, for our sakes, there was a, a popular eye powder that they developed in this region that was exported throughout the whole world that helped with bad vision. And third, they were popular for clothing. Outside the city, there were these fertile farms where they raised sheep with black wool, which of course is very unusual. And they used this black wool to create fine and expensive clothing. So they had all these things going for them. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of cash. This, this really affected the bottom line for a lot of the believers in the church in Laodicea. But the one thing they did not have was good water. They didn't have good water. You see, Laodicea had very little natural water supply. The Lycus River, which flowed through the city, uh, dried up most of the year. So what they had to do is they had to pipe in water from two sources. And so they uh, set up some aqueducts. And we have a picture of one of these. This is an actual aqueduct that connected Laodicea with a city that was six miles north called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis is a very interesting city. It was built on this dramatic cliff and there's all of these hot springs that flow throughout the city of Hierapolis. The hot springs flowed right out of the ground into these little pools of water where you could bathe. And there was like medicinal purposes for bathing. It was kind of the, the spa of, you know, the day, if you will. If you visit these baths today, you could actually still uh, go inside of them. It's one of the largest tourist attractions in Turkey. And it was from these hot springs that Laodicea piped in their main water supply. However, the problem was when this hot water came from Heropolis all the way down to Laodicea, by the time it reached Laodicea, the water was no longer hot, it was lukewarm. And to make matters worse, because it was, there was all of these minerals inside the water, it was smelly and almost undrinkable. It would make you sick to your stomach if you drank it. That was their main source of water. The other source of water uh, came from Colossae. Many of you heard of Colossae. It's the letter that Paul wrote Colossians to. It was located 11 miles southeast of Laodicea, and they had an incredible supply of pure, clean, almost alpine water that flowed from the high snow-capped Mount Catmus. These fast-flowing, chilly streams provided exceptional drinking water for the residents of Colossae, but by the time it went through the aqueduct 11 miles to Laodicea and traveled through the hot Turkish sun, it was no longer cold, but it was now lukewarm. And so if you lived in the city of Laodicea, you had this problem. The hot water had cooled down and the cold water had heated up and all of your water was lukewarm. This is what Jesus is talking about in verses 15 and 16 of our text. With a mixture of sorrow and anger and concern, he says, I know your deeds that are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, like your water, neither hot nor nor cold, I'm about to spit or literally vomit you out of my mouth. 
Now, for those of you who have been uh, around the church for a while, you've probably heard this passage quoted before, right? You've probably heard somebody say something like, Jesus desires us either to be, you know, red hot, on fire for him, that kind of thing, or he desires for us to be cold, you know, a God-hating, promiscuous atheist. Pick one or the other, you can't be lukewarm, right? Have you guys heard that before? Well, the problem with that is not only is that bad theology, that's actually not what the text is saying here. What the text is saying is that it's good, it's beneficial to be both hot and cold. Jesus desires us to be either icy hot or icy cold like the waters in Colossae or nice and warm like the water in Hierapolis. There's a benefit to hot and cold water. The best thing you could do with it is make hot coffee or cold coffee. Of course, we all know that. Uh, but, but lukewarm water is gross. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. In Laodicea, lukewarm water was something that everybody was complaining about. It was disgusting. It was nauseating. And here Jesus is saying that the church is having that same effect on him. They should be refreshing him. But instead, they're making him sick to his stomach. And the reason why this is the case is because of their self-sufficiency. Remember, it's because they don't need anything. They're like the man talked about in Psalm 10, 4 where it says, in his pride, the man does not, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That's the problem for these believers. There's no room for God in their thoughts. They believe in God. They believe in the resurrection, but he's just not very interesting to them. They don't pay a lot of attention in their thoughts to God. They, they have other things to worry about. They're too busy trusting in their riches to trust in God. They're too busy seeking security and power and control and approval in the pursuit of money to find those things in their pursuit of God. This past week, I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone, and he was telling me, he said, Brandon, uh, I'm really having trouble because I want to get closer to Jesus. I want to know him more. I want to spend more time in prayer and in scripture reading. I want to join a small group, but I just don't feel like I have enough time. I said, well, it sounds to me like you don't have room for God in your life, right? It sounds to me like you don't have room for God in your life. Why is it that so many Christians, so many of us sometimes, struggle with prayer and struggle with scripture reading and struggle with finding a man or woman to disciple us. I don't think fundamentally it's because we lack discipline. I don't think it's because we don't have enough time or enough energy. At its core, the reason why we struggle with these things is because we don't think we need God, right? It's because we don't think we need God. We think we need more money or more friends or more something else, but oftentimes we don't think we need God. And that's the root issue. That's what Jesus is tapping into. That's what Jesus is addressing here in our text. According to the early church, uh, there's a saying of Jesus that he once said, he who is near me is near the fire. I love that. He said, he who is near me is near the fire. The way we maintain our spiritual glow is by living near Jesus. But what oftentimes happens is we begin wandering away from the fire, right? begin wandering away from fire into the cold of the night. And when that happens, we lose touch with the the warm presence of Christ's love. And when we're in the darkness long enough, what oftentimes happens is we forget what it's like to live in the light. When we've been in the darkness long enough, we forget what it's like to live in the light and our priorities and our values and our vision begin to change. They begin to be rearranged. They begin to shift. There's a story by uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher. He once told about these thieves that broke into a jewelry store one night. 
But the thing is, they didn't steal anything. Instead, what they did is they just rearranged all the price tags. And then they left. And the next morning, the shop opened. People came in, and all of this very expensive jewelry was sold for almost nothing. And all of the jewelry that wasn't very valuable, that wasn't worth much, was sold for an exorbitant amount of money. And friends, you and I live in a world where the price tags have been rearranged. Where things that are not valuable, things that are not worth very much, oftentimes seems times very, very important to us. Things like being near the fire, things like being close to Jesus don't always appear that important. And things that have less value, things like making money and being entertained, oftentimes consume our lives. And in verse 17 and 18, Jesus begins putting the price tags back where they belong. He begins to show us that things aren't always the way they seem. Look with me at that text. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. I'm self-sufficient. Thank you very much. But you do not realize that you, in reality, are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This church thinks that they're rich and they've acquired wealth. But Jesus' assessment is that they are wretched, pitiful, and poor. This church thinks that they don't need anything, that they're self-sufficient. But in reality, they they are blind and they are naked. Jesus uses some very, very strong language in our text. He's almost yelling at them. It's almost a little bit uncomfortable for some of us. Why is Jesus so fired up? Why is he so excited? Why is he so impassioned? Who's familiar with uh, this? You guys know what this is? It's a defibrillator, right? It's used by doctors and EMTs to shock people back to life, to wake up a heart that has stopped beating. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in our text. He's trying to shock this church back to life. Jesus is trying to get through to these lukewarm Christians who are wasting their life being self-sufficient, who are wasting their lives by avoiding Jesus Christ. And friends, if you are living like these Laodicean Christians, if you are lukewarm, if you are self-sufficient, if you are spending all of your time dreaming about more ways to make money and what kind of vacations to go on, and if that is what is filling your thoughts and consuming your life, then this morning Jesus is holding up the paddles and he's trying to shock you as well. He's trying to get through to you. He's trying to wake you up from the American dream and to show you what really matters in life to show you what is really valuable, what is, very, what is really important. And the reason he wants to do that, please understand this, the reason he wants to do that is because he loves you. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. It's those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. I remember when our family was living in Louisville, Kentucky, Adeline, our oldest, uh, had just learned how to start to run. You know, which is always a scary thing. You have to try to keep track of them. And we were in the backyard, which uh, was an open backyard. And I turned my head for a moment, and she started tearing down the driveway. And behind our driveway was an alley where cars would just barrel through. And uh, I sprinted after her, and I got her just as she went in the street. And I bent down, and I wasn't calm, and I wasn't nice, and I wasn't kind. I shocked her. And she burst into tears. But the reason I did that is because her life was on the line. The reason I did that is because she needed to know, even if it hurt her feelings, that you can't run in the street. I shocked her. I rebuked her because I loved her. And in our text, Jesus shocks us and he rebukes us if we are lukewarm Christians because he loves us. 
because he knows the horrors of sin better than we do, because he knows the dangers of self-sufficiency, because he is jealous for our friendship and our love, and that's precisely why his message is so strong and so stern. So Jesus is rebuking lukewarm Christians here for their self-sufficiency, for living life their way. But he's doing something else too. He gives us two ways to overcome a lukewarm faith, two ways to reignite spiritual passion. And I want to consider each of these with you for the rest of our time. The first way we can overcome lukewarm faith is by depending on Jesus. It's by depending on Jesus. There's three ways that we can depend on Jesus that are mentioned in verses 17 and 18. Look with me at that text. Jesus says, You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me, and then he lists three things. One, gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich. Two, white clothes to wear so that you may cover your shameful nakedness. And finally, salve to put on your eyes so that you could see. So once again, we have these contrasts that Jesus paints. On the one hand, they are wretched, pitiful, and poor. On the other, the prescription to that problem, what they need to buy, what they need to get from Jesus, is a refined gold and real riches. On the one hand, they're blind, so they need eye salve. They're naked, so they need white clothes. Because Jesus loves lukewarm Christians, he asks them for three things. First, we're called to ask Jesus for refined faith. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich. Remember, the city prided itself in its financial wealth. The Christians, the believers in Laodicea, thought they had it all together because their house was paid off, because their horses were paid off, because they went on fancy vacations. But the irony is that they lacked real wealth. They lacked true wealth. They they lacked a refined faith. Uh, There's this new commercial that's on TV. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's for uh, the Chevy Malibu. And in the commercial, they show a bunch of scenes of these middle-class blue families. And they're kind of doing life and that kind of thing. And and at the end, the commentator has this great line. He says, introducing the new 2014 Chevy Malibu, the car for the richest guys on earth. Now, in one sense, a Chevy Malibu is not the car for the richest guys on earth, right? I mean, there's a lot more expensive cars to buy. It's only $23,000. That's not very much money uh, compared to, you know, a Lexus or a Mercedes. But what Chevy is doing is they're beginning to redefine what it means to be wealthy. And what Jesus is doing in our text is he's beginning to redefine wealth. He's beginning to say that real wealth, real riches is in a refined faith. It's in a refined faith in Jesus Christ. That's what matters. That's the treasure in the field that we sacrifice everything for. That's the reason why many Christians in Iraq are being beheaded this week. It's because they have an unswerving faith in Jesus Christ that they know is worth more than life itself. And Jesus wants us to ask him for that kind of faith. Second, we're called to ask him for forgiveness and honor. I counsel you to buy for me white clothes to wear so that you will cover your shameful nakedness. Laodicea was very proud of its clothing trade. Remember, they had those black garments from the, from the wool? But the irony is here, even though they have these fine, expensive garments, they're spiritually naked. And in this day and age, that was a big deal. Today, nakedness isn't as big of a deal. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a whole slew of new reality shows that feature naked people. 
Have you heard of these? Don't watch them. Uh, they're not good for you. Uh, but it, it's weird. They have like naked, you know, naked dating and naked camping and you know, that kind of thing. Don't watch those shows, but for some people, they don't mind it. Uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine who lives in Portland the other day, and he was saying in Portland, once a week, they have a naked bike ride. What in the world? I mean, can you imagine if they had a naked bike ride in Chandler? You know, I mean, that would just be freaky. I don't, I don't understand why people like being naked, uh, but some people don't mind it in our culture. It's not that big of a deal, right? Uh, but in the first century, it was a huge deal. You did not want to be naked. It was a sign of humiliation. It was a sign of shame. Criminals, uh, prisoners who were captured from war were stripped naked. Jesus Christ, before he went on his procession to the cross, was stripped naked. It was an act of shame. On the other hand, to be clothed with fine garments is one of the greatest honors in the ancient world. When the prodigal son returned home, what did his father do? He took his best robe and he put it on him. And in our text, Jesus says he wants to clothe lukewarm believers, not with the fine, expensive black wool of Laodicea, but with the white wool of his forgiveness and his honor and his love. No matter how far you have strayed away from Jesus, he still wants to clothe you with honor. He still wants to take your shame away and give you his love. All you have to do is ask. That's the second thing he asks us to ask him for. Finally, we're called to ask him for spiritual vision, for ISAF. I counsel you to buy for me salve, to put on your eyes so that you could see. Laodicea prided itself in this famous eye powder that would, that would help heal the eyes, but ironically, they don't have the ability to see their own spiritual poverty. They are spiritually blind. They could not see God clearly. They could not see themselves clearly, and so they're asked to receive true vision. God's vision. In uh, J.R. Tolkien's book, Two Towers, King Theoden is steadily deceived by one of his advisors. He thinks that his empire is thriving, that it's doing well, when in reality, outside the castle walls, it's crumbling. But eventually in the story, Stormcrow Gandalf throws open King Theoden's castle windows, and the fresh air rushes in, and the old king's vision is cleared. It's a shocking and painful experience, but the result is thrilling. It's transformational because the truth is discovered. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in this text. Jesus is a bit like Gandalf for lukewarm believers. He's throwing the windows open. He's letting the fresh air rush in. And he's giving us a vision of how things truly are. Of what things are valuable and what things are not all of us need this clear vision. We need it daily. We need it weekly. We need it monthly. We need the eye salve. We need the eye powder that Jesus Christ offers. In Mark chapter 8, uh, there's this strange and amazing story uh, of Jesus. And Jesus comes into the town of Bethsaida, and uh, the residents there bring to him uh, this blind man. And they say, you know, well, you just touch this man because we want him healed. And so Jesus, filled with compassion, filled with love, grabs this man's hand. He walks him outside the village. And once they're outside the village, the text says that he bends down and he takes some saliva, some spit, and he puts it in the man's eyes. And he says, what do you see now? And the blind man opens his eyes. And he says, well, everything's a little bit blurry. It's better, but people kind of look like trees walking around. So Jesus says, okay, let's try this again. So he gets a little bit more spit, puts it on his eyes. He says, what do you see now? And the man opens his eyes. And he says, I see everything. I see everything clearly. Now I know what the world looks like. Now I see 2020. 
And Jesus wants to do that for us spiritually today. Jesus wants to give us new eyes. Jesus wants to give us clear vision. Jesus wants to give us a sight for his priorities in the world, a sight for what truly matters in the world. The first way we overcome lukewarm faith is by depending on Jesus. It's by asking him for these three things, for refined faith, for forgiveness, and for spiritual vision. The second way we overcome lukewarm faith is found in Revelation 3.20, a passage many of us are well familiar with. And the invitation here is for believers to get to know Jesus. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. Now, oftentimes this passage is used uh, in the context of seekers, people who are not Christians, uh, and it's used as an invitation for them to come and know Jesus. And, And that's fair. That's an appropriate use of this text. The invitation certainly extends to all people. But we have to remember that in this text, the primary audience is these lukewarm Christians in this church of Laodicea. It's an invitation for believers who have locked Christ out of their life to let him back in. It says that Jesus is knocking at the door of the hearts of lukewarm Christians, asking, pleading to come in and to eat or to dine with him. The word eat here in the Greek is very interesting. Uh, There was three different kinds of meals uh, in the first century. There was a breakfast that people would eat. Usually it was just a, a little piece of bread dipped in wine. And then there was a lunch, which was kind of a quick meal. People would eat it on the job, on the streets, or in the town square. Uh, during their work day, and then there was supper. Then there was the evening meal. And when the evening meal came, all of the day's work had been done, and it was time to relax. It was time to take off your sandals, put up your feet, and just linger, laugh, get to know people, foster intimacy. And that's the meal that Jesus is referring to. He wants to share not a hurried meal, but a lingering meal where intimacy is fostered with the man or woman who answers his knock. But in order for us to share this meal with Jesus, the text says that we have to open the door. When we hear Jesus knocking, we have to open the door. We don't open the door very often. I remember 20 years ago uh, when I was growing up, when somebody knocked at the door, it was, it was a happy moment, right? It was, it was called company. Uh, I remember I'd be sitting in the back room with my parents and my brother. We'd watch TV, and somebody came knock on the door, You know, first thing we did, flipped off the TV, turned off all the lights, run to the door, swing it open without seeing who it is. And it didn't matter if it was a neighbor, a friend, a stranger. We would invite that person in, put them at the dinner table. My mom would cut up some cake, bring some coffee in. And for 30, 40 minutes at a time, we would have face-to-face conversation. No iPhones, no video games, just conversation. We would just talk. Now when somebody knocks at the door... Very, very different experience, right? When we're at home now, somebody knocks on the door, we're on high alert. Kelly and I start to get freaked out. I ask her, did you invite somebody over? No, did you? No. Well, maybe if we turn off all the lights and hide, they'll think we're not home. You know, do you guys ever do that? You know, I, Kelly's, you know, army crawling across the kitchen floor. You know, the girls are hiding in their bedrooms. You know, that's kind of what we do now. So, uh, but it's a very different experience. You have to call ahead. You don't just knock on the door now. It's rude. But the irony is, this is exactly what we do with Jesus many times, right? Jesus comes knocking on the door of our hearts, and we begin to hide. We begin to think if we're quiet enough, he'll go away. 
We could trick him into thinking we're not home, but Jesus loves us too much to leave us alone. Every day he stands there knocking on the doors of our life, asking to come in, to share cake and conversation and coffee with us, to develop intimacy, to develop a friendship between us and him. William Holman Hunt was a famous 19th century painter, and, and by far his most magnificent piece uh, was this painting uh, he did called The Light of the World. We have a picture of it here. Uh, the Light of the World painting, it's interesting because if you look at it closely, there's no handle on the door. And a lot of people thought this was a mistake. You know, they're like, well, I guess Hunt just forgot to put the handle on the door. Uh, simple mistake. So they interviewed him in the late 1800s and they asked him about this. And he said, no, it wasn't a mistake, it was intentional. You see, the door has to be open from the inside. The door has to be open from the inside. So Jesus will knock at the door, but he's not going to barge his way in. He's not going to force his way into our lives. We have to open the door of our hearts to him. We have to turn the handle and let him come in. How do we do that? How do we turn the handle of the door? How do we let Jesus into our life? Well, I think it begins with a desire to simply keep company with Jesus. Do we want him in our lives? Do we want him at our dining room table? It begins there. But that's not enough. We also need to create space for him. We have to clear off the table. We have to allow him to have space to operate. And while there's no set formula for doing this, one thing Christians have done for centuries and centuries, ever since the inception at the church, is to put in what are known as spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines in their life to help them stay connected with Jesus, to help create a regular rhythm to their week where they're continually exposed to God. Scripture reading and prayer are disciplines that all of us are familiar with, but there's a rich variety of other ways that we can engage with Jesus. In addition to different ways of praying and different ways of reading Scripture, there are things like fasting and silence and meditation. There are exercises called the examine. There's Bible memorization and many, many more. If you're interested in learning more about spiritual disciplines, at the bottom of your sermon guides on the back side, we create a webpage uh, that has some recommended resources on this. But this, this morning, what I want to do is I want to challenge each and every one of us with just two spiritual disciplines this week, two ways to apply Jesus' message to us. And these disciplines are my Bible memorization and Bible meditation. If you look inside of uh, your bulletins, you'll find a bookmark. So if we have a bookmark, it looks like this. And on the front side, uh, we put the picture I'm talking about, uh, William Holman's Hunt, The Light of the World painting. And then on the back side, there's Revelation 320, uh, what, what I call the Jesus knock passage, right? That's what we're looking at here, this invitation to get to know Jesus. And this week, my challenge to you is to take this bookmark and to put it somewhere where you'll see it every single day. Put it uh, in the visor, uh, put, it, put it in your visor in your car, put it uh, on the refrigerator or on your vanity mirror, somewhere where you'll see it and start to memorize the Jesus knock. Just one, one verse. And as you memorize that, my challenge to you is don't let it just stop there, but begin to meditate and ponder and think how God is calling you to open the door of your heart to Jesus. What does it mean for you to turn the handle and open the door? It's going to look different for different people. Some of us are at different places in our spiritual walk, in our spiritual journey. But are there some concrete steps? Maybe that's spiritual disciplines. Maybe it's something else. Are there concrete steps that you can begin to put in place that will help foster intimacy with Christ? 
that will allow you guys to talk around the kitchen table and allow that transformation that we're talking about to take place. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus, we know that you are knocking on the door of this church. You are knocking on the door of our lives every single day, inviting us to dine with you, inviting us to be with you. And many of us, Father, here today are feeling a little bit lukewarm. We're not feeling hot. We're not feeling cold. We're feeling a little bit like we've been leaning on our own strength for too long, like we've been living life according to our own resources and power and wisdom for too long, and we're done with it. We're ready to repent. We're ready to turn to you. We're ready for a radical God dependency. And so we ask you for that. We ask you for your power and your wisdom. For others of us, Father, we're at different places in our spiritual journey and maybe we're feeling like we're doing okay, but there's more space to allow you into our life. There's more opportunities for you to move and get to know us, Father. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to know how to do that this week because nothing matters more than our relationship with you, Father. I pray that we would put the price tags in the right place. I pray that we would see life for what it truly is, Father, that we wouldn't be tricked by the world, but that we would be inspired by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.